You're listening to Almost Famous, a music industry podcast championing independence powered by The Famous Company. Whether you're an artist or music industry professional, ensure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Denise, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. How's uh, lockdown 2.0 treating you? <laughs> not bad at all. I'm one of the lucky ones, aren't I? Um, yeah. You know, I, I work from home mostly anyway. Um, this this is my little home office and um, it's just it's just the stuff at um, like going to London and meeting record companies and that. That's the bit I miss. But, you know, yeah. in terms of a lot of people, I think I'm, I'm really lucky. No, no, for uh, sure, you know? for sure. I think it's the social aspect that I'm missing as well the most. Just yeah, seeing people. Yeah, um, yeah. the actual. I, I think that's it—the one-on-one and all that. You know, I'm mm. I'm I'm happiest when I'm out socialising and getting about and doing stuff. That's that's when my like happy place. And so it, it is a bit odd, but you know, it's it's kind of um, you have to adapt, don't you? We do indeed. We do indeed. Hopefully, we'll be looking back on this episode and a. In a year's time, thinking it wasn't that crazy time. We're all back to some sort of normality. But uh, I think so. I don't know how quickly it's going to end, but I think I think it will be. It's you know, it's it, we'll get to a point and go. Is that just a bad dream? <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I think the music industry is one of those kind of things that have. Uh, have had to adapt the most, and I think that's what's so good about this uh, this podcast is we're getting to we're getting to kind of not only just talk about the culture and the stories behind it and how things got to where they are, uh, but also give advice to um, up and coming and like emerging artists and, and independent labels and all this with, uh, with kind of like a keep going guys, because yes, it is tough and it is going to be hard and it's, it's not the easiest right now, but there is a few things that the experts think like yourself, you can, you can, you can be doing and, and I think, uh, yeah, I really, really do hope we don't lose out on some great talent just because of a time like this. But I think that the problem is with talent, which um, is something I drum into my artists constantly, that if if they get knocked back and they can't bounce back from it, then they're not going to make it anyway because... It's the way the industry is. It's it's as much about resilience and about drive and about putting yourself out there as it is about having the talent. And it it's you know if if like there there will be a lot of talent for by the wayside because of this. There will be. There's no mm. question of it. Um, but if they haven't got the drive in the first place, would they have coped in the real world of the music business? Because it, it is it's plumbing tough out there. It really is. It's, I yeah. wouldn't do it for a million years, even if I'd got the talent to <laughs> sing or perform or, or whatever. I, I still don't think I'd put myself out there for it. That's probably mm. why I respect my talent so much. No, I love the fact that we've gone straight in. I haven't even introduced you yet. This is great. Uh, right, everybody listening. <laughs> oh, is, this, is this the interview? I thought it was... No, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think you gave something great then, so I can I can definitely put it in, ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm speaking to the great Denise Beaton. I, I did pronounce your surname properly, didn't I? 
Yes, yes, you did. Get in. There you go. <laughs> um, you've worked with amazing acts. Um, everyone from Whitney Houston, take that. Annie and Alex, you've, you've, you seem to have, of course, had, I'd say, uh, hand in most great things that have happened in the UK music industry. I, I, I want to give you that credit. You can tell me yes or no <laughs> of that, but... <laughs> no, that, that is an exaggeration. And also, it's been mostly very pop, so that would be open to interpretation by some people. No, um, I think I, reading everything that you've done um, is, is absolutely mind-blowing. But let's take, it, let's take it a little back to the, to the start. Actually, I think what would be great, but for everyone listening, tell us who you are and what you do in the music industry. Um, okay, I'm Denise Beaton. I'm a music manager, a music consultant. I've been in the industry for um, 35, 36 years. Um, for 20 years of that, it was at a major. I worked at Sony. Um, at, well, it was BMG then before the Sony merged. Um, and then um, I've had my own company for probably the last 16 or 17 years, which I've absolutely loved doing. Nice, nice. And the, and the company that you're talking about is uh, Upside Records, which we'll, of course, be talking about today. How did you get your start, though? You said that you were working at, at BMG. How did you get to, uh, to, to, to that great opportunity? Um, I think I was, I was always into music. I was always mad on music. I was always going to gigs and, um, like, doing stuff. And um, anyway, a friend of mine, I just, I just had my son, and a friend of mine was working uh, for RCA. They'd got a little um, set up in the Midlands. And um, she <laughs> – this, this is very, very random and shows how old I probably am but um, Bucks Biz had just won the Eurovision Song Contest and um, anyway they've got the telesales department based under the distribution area and they were just desperate to cope with the demand of all of the record stores ringing in for the um, for copies of the Bucks Biz and um, anyway so I started as a part-time temp and I went in, we sat there talking with record stores all day. I couldn't believe I got paid for it. And um, it, it kind of went from there. And I think when, you, when you're really into something, you tend to be good at it. And I just went up through the ranks. And um, it, within, within a couple of years of starting as a part-time temp, I managed the department. Then I moved on to work out of London. So I was working in London and, and still living in the Midlands. Um, and um, then eventually got to director level at at Sony BMG, um, which was was quite an accomplishment. But most of it I put down to the fact that I was doing something I, I absolutely loved, you know. And and people think you know music business is all about you know going out and socialising and having a great laugh and all that. And there is that, but it's incredibly hard work and it takes masses of dedication. And if you throw that in, I mean, I had days when I was working, I was the first in the office at like nine o'clock and I was last out at 10 o'clock when the security guard used to come up and kick me out. So, you know, I paid my dues and, um, and luckily it worked out. 
Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's something that really goes uh, unstated in this industry is the, the the amount of work that goes in behind the scenes. Um, this podcast has been great at spread it like sorry, um, shedding the light on that um, and the work that that really does go into a release, an artist, or, or, or whatever it is. Um, t- tell us the work that you do at Upside Records then, um, and and how it kind of began there. Well, it, it came about, um, I, I was kind of at a point at BMG where I was wondering what next, and you, you've done various roles and been in things. And I think sometimes when you get to the point where you don't want your boss's job, then you know that you, you've kind of like reached that ceiling. And um, we were wondering what to do. I was looking after, um, we, we had um, a... a a division that looked after ITV and I was looking after that. I was the director of that. Um, Sony came along at the end of the contract and poached them. Um, I was, sorry, no, it wasn't Sony, it was Universal, but that's digressing a bit. But anyway, I was at a loose end because I didn't know where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. And so I left with um, the, the person who was actually working with me at the time and we set up Upside, um, we set up the Upside Records. And the view was initially because um, we were doing a lot of compilations and that that business was massive at the time. So the view was initially that we were just going to be consultants and we, we were just going to do these compilation albums because they were very, um, very unemotional, if you like. You'd had a bunch of tracks and you put them together and it was all very creative, but you didn't like fall on your sword if they didn't make it. Whereas with, mm. with artist projects, it it's people, isn't it? It's not baked beans, it's it's actual people. So initially we said, oh let's just do this and, and we were we were doing that. And then because we've been working with ITV, ITV then said at the end of it, um look we're doing a TV show will you manage the act that came, that comes off it? Because they knew we'd got the expertise with the record company side of it. Um, and so we we took on um, a girl band that came from Popstars Arrivals. Um, and that was the start of us being, um, being management as well as... Um, as, as well as consultants and um, then I mean, we, we took the girls we signed them to Warners um, they they had two records one went in at one one went in at 21 one went in at 22 Warners had spent an absolute fortune on them the first video we shot in Vancouver we all went out and had a week in Vancouver staying at the same hotel as Buster Rhymes and really really living it up and yeah. and so when you're only going at 21 and 22 in the charts all of a sudden the record labels say oh we've spent a bit too much money here let's mm. um, let's bail so we were left with a girl band and um, we negotiated as part of the exit deal that we'd take the album with us and the very, very expensive videos, one in, one in Vancouver and one in Budapest. And we went and we actually set up the record side of it as well. So all of a sudden we went from being consultants to a record label to, um, to management as well. But um, we ended up, we licensed the album and the girls to 22 territories around the world. We flew out, we, we went with them and stood. 
um, China, Europe, um, all of the Far East went to Hong Kong where they were number one and there were billboards the size of walls all over the place and everything. It was really, really, I mean, when we got to Thailand, um, we we didn't realise we got off the off the plane. The girls had all got their big sunnies on because we'd been on the plane for a long time. And um, we got to the airport, and there was all these screaming people and paparazzi press and everything. And we're looking round like for the Beckhams or something, and they were there for the girls. And it was like it was it was really really surreal. And they were they were photographed for OK magazine and everything. Um, it was it was just it, it was just crazy it was uh, you know for a band that that had been dropped from the label we we ended up having seven really good years of you know decent income decent touring and um it 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 goes to show which i'd say to artists you know if it's not working in the uk there's a very very big world out there that might suddenly get you and that's what we found with the girls you know they were um they, they were supporting i think um, I think it was a, a festival. It, it was might have been in Norway, but there were like fifty thousand people that they performed in front of. And it, it's wow. it, there's a big a big world out there, and mm. it, it's there to be untapped. And of course now it, it's even easier because then we we had to license the tracks. Now with everything being online and streaming and downloads and everything, you know you can very very easily set up. Then it was a lot harder to set up a label, you know, and you had to run the risk of running some physical copies. Now you can do it relatively cheap, and it's it, it's good. Um, so it's it, it's it's worth like artists looking into going international from the off and and looking at things and approaching labels if they're getting a blank from people in the UK. Looking mm. up, it's it's very very easy to find things um, and and find your way around these days. No, for sure. Um, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it is it clear? I'm trying to think of the the bands from Pop Stars: The Rivals. Yeah, it was clear. Yes, yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was. What year would that have been? It's, uh... Uh, hang on, I've got posts from the wall. Two thousand and six, we did the Trinity record, so it would have been about two thousand and three, I think. Yeah, it's I think like it would have been so many years condensed. It's so it's a hard when if you just spoke to me in the nineties, I could have told you exactly what year I did what. But now yeah. they're so so condensed. I'm I'm hard pushed finding the the decade. <laughs> you just got all the information on the walls around you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just pick a poster. You uh, you mentioned, of course, it was it was uh, ITV, but um, I, I do believe um, you've done a lot of consulting work. Uh, with Simon Cowell and Psycho, which is his, uh, his label. Um, you got to tell us more about working with him um, and kind of how you, you got to that point. I'm assuming it's the ITV connection. I may be wrong, uh, but go uh, ahead and let no, us know. Uh, well, funny enough, it was, the, it was the other way around. It was, um, I, I kind of, I, I worked with Simon way, way before he was famous or, or well-known. He was an A&R man. And um, we, we got on like a house on fire. And um, he, I, I kind of came to him and told him about Robson and Jerome, which he, he ended up signing up. That did 10 million units. Um, and it was, it, it, it sounds, now it feels very dated and a long way away, but... 
In the 90s, Robson and Jerome actually had two albums in, in the top 10 for the decade. That's how big it was, just to put it into perspective. Um, so Simon and I did, did Robson and Jerome, which incidentally made him his first million, um, because at the time he'd just been evicted from his house for not paying his mortgage and he was living with his mum and dad. And it was like, so, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a, a, quite a timely thing. He, he made an absolute fortune of it. Um, but what it made him realise was the power of television. So then he went off and he did this deal with ITV to, um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, oh, yeah, take as many water breaks as you need to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really, it's a, a bit husky. Oh. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he, he went off and he did this deal with, with um, it was ITV, it was Granada TV with, with the holding company at the time. And um, anyway, they... Um, I think the deal had gone probably about 12 months um, before um, Simon, had, because, of, because of Robson and Jerome, he'd then got Westlife and he'd got other big things on the go. And he just became too busy to really pay as much attention as ITV needed. Um, mm. So Simon approached me then and said, look, Denise, will you run the, run the division for me? Because it's been neglected. They're, they're getting very upset about it, and quite rightly so. And um, so we we arranged that I would take I, I would take the deal. And what the deal entailed was doing anything from like you know things like Robson and Jerome actors in the in the program doing a song and selling off that. It was um, that they did the pop stars program, which Simon actually turned down. Uh, hearsay which he came to regret but then that's another story how he come to do pop idol and x factor etc but it's it's all kind of run into into each other and so the the tv um by the way you might need to edit this because i do go on a bit (laughs) no i'm loving this (laughs) but the tv station they um Sorry, sorry, I'm going. I'm digressing a bit. Um, with Simon, they they were upset because Simon wasn't paying them enough attention. So I went in and ran it with Simon at the helm, and we were we were kind of just doing it together. There were situations where we put um, take that had split up. Um, Gary Barlow's first album had flopped badly. Um, the chairman of BMG at the time came to me and said, "Look, you know, Gary Barlow's made." us a lot of money over the years um can we find some outlet on the tv that that would um that that would suit him in order to get his music across and try and do something because they were in a serious situation where they needed to if not if they couldn't resuscitate it then they'd have to drop gary and they felt guilty for it because of everything that wow yeah of course done so anyway, so we, we went to we went to ITV and had a meeting and we ended up putting him in an episode of Heartbeat, uh, which was absolute heartbeat at the time was was like getting something like 20 million viewers. It was also selling albums. We did the soundtracks and they so the some of the soundtracks sold half a million units plus. So it was a great outlet for Gary. We negotiated that he'd do an original song and everything. Um, but they, and the, the character was great. Um, and anyway, he, it was, it was a bit of a, a disaster because 
um, we went to, he, he, we, we had the meetings about Heartbeat in about the August, September. They were due to start filming in the January. Gary turns up at the meetings. He looks amazing. He's fit and healthy and he's, he's really, really good. In the meantime, between the Christmas and the New Year, when the, the, just after Christmas, they, they were due to start filming, Gary managed to go to the Kay Islands and get married and put on at least two stone. Um, wow. I turned up on the, on the morning of the filming and he's sitting there in the trailer with a plate, a big, a big full English and like, oh, hiya. They had to send out, because they fitted all his outfits and sent out for ones of three times the size. And the character was a bit of a Jack the Lad, good-looking, cocky, confident thing. And Gary just didn't look the part anymore or anything. And he just oh, ended yeah. up not working. So um, <laughs> so that was that was the end of that. But anyway, that that's going off on another tangent, because... Um, the other things was to, to basically use music in TV. And that was mm. the whole aspect of the deal. And that's why Simon signed it in the first place. And it, it was good while it lasted until Universal came and poached it. And that's when that's when I came out of, of the whole corporate setup and, and went independent. No, yeah, that's amazing. I think you, you kind of touched on as well, uh, you said about the, the compilation albums. Um, now you're the, the brains behind multi-million um selling compilation series like uh chick flicks uh i i actually found the advert for tearjerkers earlier as well on youtube i was, I was quite <laughs> happy about that um school reunions a, a few people in the uk might might know what i'm talking about but, but what's the story behind these ideas and um why do you think they were so successful and also i do believe that they probably were more successful uh, about a decade ago than they, they would be now. Um, so let's talk about that comparison as well. Yeah, well, I think um, at, at the time, albums were, the, the, you were still selling loads of physical CDs. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it was, there was a, a boom. It was, it was really, really good. Um, what we would do is we would come up with the creative so we'd go to we'd go to a record label and we'd say, this is the idea for the album. This is a suggested track listing. This is the idea for the advert, the artwork, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'd either buy into it or not. So we'd be shopping around these ideas. Um, Chick Flicks was a bit of a, a funny one. And Chick Flicks kind of put us on the map, if you like, in, in that area. Because um, we... We suddenly came up, I, I came up with the idea one, one evening and we got a meeting with Warners the next day and I knocked up the idea very, very quickly um, on, on my computer and, um, and printed it off because that's what you used to do then. And anyway, we, um, we, we went into the guy at Warners and a lovely, lovely guy who ran the, who ran the whole of the commercial area and we said, look, you know, we've got this idea, chick flicks. And he looked at it and he said, oh, no, movie albums aren't working at the moment. He's like, Universal just did a big one. They spent a lot of money and it didn't sell. And they did so and so. And he gives us all the reasons why movie albums aren't selling. And we're like, well, it's not actually a movie album per se. It's a chick flick album, which is a completely different 
ball game because it's way, way more targeted than just going, hey, these are all a bunch of songs from the movies. We said mm. it's quite a movement. You know, at the time, the, the Bridget Jones and that had just just come out. The books had been huge. And it was it was um, a really, really good time. So we came up with the... Um, so, no, at first he said no. He, he said, no, I don't get it. But he was a geezer. He was an Arsenal fan and very boyish and laddish and all that. <laughs> and I said to him, OK, well, before you say no properly, can you ask a few of the women in your life? You know, you, you're married, ask your wife, ask your sister, ask whatever. I said, but before you say no, just get a different perspective on it. He said, okay, okay, I'll do that. So anyway, we went on and we presented a few other little bits and bobs. Then nine o'clock the next, the next morning, my phone's going, it's going, we'll take that album. And I said, um, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you, I did what you said. So I, I went home and I said to my wife, oh, what, um, I've been presented this record, chick flicks, I don't know what to do. She said, I'd buy it. And he said, well, I haven't told you what's on it yet. And she said, well, it's obvious what's on it. I'd buy it. Anyway, and so he went and he asked someone else and someone else. And in the end, I think he just got a 10 out of 10, which you wouldn't normally get. But 10 yeah. women he asked, 10 women went, I'd buy it. And he, he suddenly went, this is, this is a winner. So yeah. we got it and we hooked up with, um, with Heat Magazine and we we kind of like we asked the readers to suggest the tracks and you know we knew what it was going to be it was Ronan Keating when you say nothing at all and um wet 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 and all of these songs have been huge anyway just great songs movies. yeah great great <laughs> songs but I mean I think I think the moral of the story there which could apply to any artist project is know your market if you if when you dilute when he said movie albums aren't selling, that's because you're diluting the proposition. Mm. This was aimed specifically, and because it was aimed specifically, we knew exactly where to target the advertising. So it was it was everything was was so spot on, and it was like the the album it sold um oh. Across the series, it sold millions, and also it worked overseas as well. It went in New Zealand and America. New Zealand, it was number one for about eight weeks. I think it was it outsold net now there. Um, it never reached number one here, but it stayed in the chart for I think two years, and then we did subsequent follow-ups. But of course, with such a, a strong proposition, you're always going to be watering it down anyway. Yeah. Um, because you know, I think we did um, Chick Flicks the sequel, and we we did a few, and they all had that similar. Um, you know, the the whole visual was very. It, it was the mirror with a lipstick on and popcorn, and it, it was all very very targeted, and that and that's what worked for it. Um, and it was great. And then it, it was um, it, it was the same when we did the Tearjerkers album. That was our other big one. That one did millions across the, across the actual genre. Was because it was laden with ballads. People made the assumption, like I'm not talking the public. The public knew exactly what it was, which I knew they would. Mm. But um, the the actual perception from the record labels and the marketing people and initially retail was, oh, it's another love album. It's coming up to Christmas. We've got too many love albums. And we're like, well, actually, no. 
it's not a love album. And in actually, opposite. It was the complete opposite. And the mystery market, believe it or not, is huge over Christmas. And um, and it it was like the the actual and and this is this is kind of something that we'd had in our head for ages. The actual thing was it was a funeral album because we'd been thinking this apparently there's a famous a big funeral like like the Diana Candle in the Winds that that spawned the biggest single ever you know in in history when Alton John reads Uncandling the Winds and yeah. this whole funeral business and I think it was around that that we we said how do we do a funeral album the public won't buy a funeral album with funeral in the title or death or anything like that and we we were trying to think how to get around it and then I was on holiday and I was in um I was in Florida and I was like, a lot of people that, um, uh, you know, English, Brits abroad were shocking. Every day I had to go and buy a British newspaper and read it on the beach. And I'm sitting on the beach and I'm reading this article about the top 20 funeral songs of the time. And um, anyway, in this article, they used the word tearjerkers three times. And I just suddenly thought, Oh, no self-respecting journalist would use the same word three times if there was one to match it. So I ripped out the article and put it in my little light bag and just just kinds of then. Then I think I forgot about it for about two or three months and then suddenly come across it when I was looking at something else. And then, oh, wow. So we knocked it up. And um, anyway, we took it. This was again, this was Warner's. And it was the it was the same guy, believe it or not. And he said, um, he, he goes, um, oh no, he said we've got the love album, we've got this, we've got that. And um, I said, no, you're missing the point. It's not a love album. And I said, please, please trust me on this. And because of what's happened with Chick Flicks, he took a flyer on it, and it ended up going in at number four, and it stayed in the charts again another couple of years. It was remarketed at. Mother's Day, at um, at Father's Day, at Easter, and then again the following Christmas, and it just went on and on and on, and um, and it was great. So it, it's kind of, I think we we sort of like we we saw this little gap in what was predominantly a female, um, a female target audience. And they're also really easy and very cost-effective to reach. And, and that's where we kind of found our little niche. And we, we had about five years of that being the top company doing what we were doing. Um, and then, of course, with downloads and, and downloads at first, funny enough, compilations still worked, even though people could buy the individual's singles. I think people still like them being compiled for them. Yeah. But then when the... Um, when streaming came and, and sort of overtook downloads and certainly the physical sales now are very negligible, then the only thing that really works now in the marketplace are kind of hybrids of, um, of the Now um, series. Because um, funny enough, Now does more now than it did back in the day. It's, you know, I think I think Now 100 was their biggest selling ever or, or something. It's, which You're is kidding bad. me. No, it's it's crazy, but that seems wow. to be the only one working these days, like to any large extent. So, fair, fair play to. 
I, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it, it, it's quite an odd one because I think back then for us it would have been great for them to be on it and now we're talking about uh, the 2020 market I guess I guess playlisting is your equivalent to it um, and for everyone listening right now you may think all right Denise has been great at telling us of course um, about what happened in the late 90s early 2000s mid 2000s however you you do a lot of managing now. And we got to talk about one of the biggest names connected to Upside, which is Karen Harden. And she is absolutely fantastic. I've been listening to her all morning, just in preparation for this. Um, Definitely got me more energetic than ever. Um, How did that journey start with her? I know she started on The X Factor. um, And I believe she also did the, the Eurovision song contest she had like an entry for it but didn't of course make it that far either um how did you two meet and and like I said yeah how did you get that journey started it's um this this could be potentially a very long story so you might you might need to edit all of this but um (laughs) we met we met Karen when she was 16 and um, she she just won a singing competition in the northeast. Um, funny enough, the runner-up was Joe McAldry, who went on the very same year to win the X Factor. And wow. um, anyway, so Karen had won this competition. The prize for the competition was a management contract and a record contract. But the person who run the con the competition was. Um, somebody who wasn't really in a position to offer either. Um, he was a guy that worked at the Northeast. He didn't have contacts in the industry. Um, just, a, a, I think, a pot of money to, to throw at it. And there, mm. there are a lot of people like that out there. And um, anyway, he'd, we were managing Journey South from the X Factor at the time, and he'd asked us if he could book Karen on a couple of their dates. And um, so... He'd already paid a support fee for one of his other acts. So we said, well, yeah, okay, why not? Um, So I met Karen when she was 16. She got the most ridiculously good voice um, I'd ever heard. Um, And this guy took us on to try and help him get connected. Now, um, anyone who's making music now will know that in order to get a record deal, you have to have pretty much the whole package, the finished record and everything else. And anyway, so with with Karen, I kind of said she was 16. She was very young. She didn't know, like, when you said, what are you listening to? She was inspired by 80s. She loved um, things like hearts and she loved... Um, dance music and she loved um, Kelly Clarkson and she, she, you know, like a typical teenager would yeah. do and she she got a fantastic voice that could lend itself to singing most genres to be honest so we, we said, we sat down with her then manager and said, look, you know, what we'll do we'll, we'll try and do it the old fashioned way because her voice is so unique and distinct, we'll take, a, we'll take her into the record labels and let her sing for them and say, come on, you're A&R people, you find a way for her. And mm. anyway, so we, we did that. She went in a few labels and um, Ireland kind of thought uh, she'd be great fronting a Geordie girl band. Um, and they sent us off to Newcastle to audition some girls and then that never came about. Decca thought she would be a bit of a Lady Sings the Blues kind of artist and 
Um, funny enough, they made the, the same record they wanted to make with Karen years later with Rebecca Ferguson, which was um, which was odd. Then um, I, I think it was Polydor thought she would be that she could be the next Kelly Clarkson and wanted to go a soft rock route with her. And basically, nobody could could put her in. So then she started. Um, she was at this point. She was working really, really hard up in Newcastle. She was singing in nightclubs, singing over 80s, um, 80s backing tracks, and she was doing all of that kind of stuff and waitressing as well. And she was um, she was putting, um, oh, I'm skipping the bit with Eurovision and X Factor. At that point, I'd been approached by both of those TV series to say, do you have anyone that would go in? Hmm. Um, and we we put her in. You know, the the Eurovision was a disaster. It shouldn't. It, we should never have done it. And um, you know, but do you know what Rita Ora and other people have done that route as well. And everybody has to trial and error. Yeah, for um, people that are listening, though, uh, sorry to go over today. The actual Eurovision one wasn't a um, wasn't the like the competition that we all know. It was like a pre-competition to the competition. Is that correct? I know we have a lot of people yeah. listening that that may not live in the UK or or may not even live in Europe, and everyone knows Eurovision, a massive competition. She didn't get to that level. I, I believe many countries have these mini competitions to see who they put through, and so oh. you kind of suggested she'd be one of them, I guess. Yeah, because I, I got a call and we sat and we talked about it and we said, yeah, let, let's do it. But it, it's kind of sometimes when you go when you go into those things, you, you're kind of dictated to the song was wrong for her. The styling, right. every, everything about it was wrong. And because we didn't at that point know who she was in terms of Karen Harding, the artist, we mm. kind of we went with the flow. And then, um, funny enough, Psycho were one of the labels that I'd, I'd taken her in to sing. Um, Psycho made a big, big deal in the meeting how they could break artists without the programmes. They said she'd, she'd done the um, I'm Telling You, I, I'm Not Leaving, the big Jennifer Hudson um, song. And um, anyway, she she'd done that. And um, they said, we've seen it done a lot of times, and that is in the top three at least and they were really bowled over by her so they went to great lengths to tell us and to tell her and she's sitting there 16 year old how they would how how they could break an artist without the shows and they mentioned Il Devo and Westlife and a few others and then six months later called me up and said oh are you still with that girl that you brought in because we'd love to put her in the show and um, so <laughs> it was. It, it was one of those things. So she went to um, she went to Newcastle, got a standing ovation. Uh, Nicole Scherzinger and whoever else was on the panel then telling her they just watched the winner of the X Factor. For yeah, she got year. four yeses. If my if I'm correct, I'm trying to remember back to the year she was on it. But uh, yeah, oh, I don't believe she... it was Simon that was that was judging. I think it was Gary Barlow, maybe Louis Walsh still. Yeah, yeah. But she she ended up getting about probably she got got to boot camp. She ended up getting about thirty seconds of airtime in the whole time, which was mm. to our favour. Which is is why I get a bit annoyed these days when people try and 
ITV or the experts are trying to claim Karen as one of their own. I saw some list published where they've got the artists that have succeeded from X Factor and Karen was on the list, you know, and, and it, it was like, well, why are you claiming this girl? You actually, um, all the way through the, the process, they were calling me up going, oh my God, she's amazing. She's going to win it. She's going to win it. She's going to win it. And then it gets to it. And I think what, I think what it was, was because Karen is, is actually a, a real artist. She's, she's a fantastic girl. She's got a really, really good attitude, but she mm. comes from a very stable family. She's got a lovely mum and dad. They're very close-knit and everything. And she hadn't got anywhere near this sub story that they kept looking for with her. Right. And yeah. um, Anyway, and so I think, I think what was happening was she was in, in the mix because what they do on these shows, and I advise any of my people that want to go in for it, um, I'd never say don't do it. Just go in as clued up as you possibly can. Because what they do is they, they cast you. They, they give you a role. And so it, it's kind of, if they've already filled that role, it, it would be a bit like, I, I don't know, you going for a role as a black girl in EastEnders. You've got zero chance because they've already filled that role. Exactly, and that's yeah. Get. And it, yeah. it's kind of, so, so what happens with, with, Karen, Karen was relatively, she wasn't a sob story. She was, she was very stable. She was doing what she was doing. And then uh, uh, I think it was just before bootcamp point, Tamara Foster was in there with, um, in a girl band thing. She was, she was in the groups and they decided she was more value on her, her own. So they split her from the groups. All of a sudden they got their mixed race Diva voice powerhouse kind of yeah. yeah. They they got that, but what they got was one that created a lot better TV because she had tantrums, she burst into tears, she right. you know she, she did everything, and it, it was like um, it, it was kind of they they just thought that oh, this is a better this is a better show, and that's mm. why Karen kind of lost out at boot camp, and we, we're glad now and. Funny enough, in the lead up to that, um, I, I was saying to Karen all, all along, look, you know, you, you need to be, you need to be putting your stuff on um, onto um, YouTube. YouTube was massive at the time, and um, we, we were saying you you've got to stop. People are breaking off YouTube. You've got to put your stuff. So she'd put a YouTube cover up and get maybe two hundred views. And it disheartened her. She was going, well, I'm only getting 200 views. And I, I was like, well, 200 views. One day you could just have the one that matters. And anyway, the, as it happened, um, M&AK was ill. He was scouring through YouTube, come across Karen and her cover version of Latch. And... Um, he invited her down to the studio. She went down. She did a session with him. It was an okay song. It, it was quite good. Then she'd done another song. And what happened was, although M&AK wasn't as big as he is now, he was he was buzzing. So mm. his name 
would give us a foothold into labels and stuff, you know, and all of a sudden people were, uh, we'd started to talk to talk about Karen to various people. And there was a few people that liked her, but not enough to sign her up. And um, anyway, and then the one day, um, which is this, if, any, if anybody's watching and what we said at the beginning about being persevering and sticking with it, um, Karen, Karen was on her way to a session with m and and um, she was on the train from Newcastle and she got this text message from him saying, I'm, I'm really, really sorry, I'm going to have to cancel. And she, she'd, worked, she'd worked three shifts at her waitressing and I don't know what else in order to pay for the ticket to get her to, to London. And so she just got back saying, you can't cancel. I've paid for my ticket. I'm on the train. I can't, like, what, what will I do? You, you cannot cancel me. I've got to come. So he yeah. kind of went, he went, oh, okay, I can fit you in between, um, I think it was five and seven. So she gets there. She's all flustered and that. Little Mix are leaving the studio as she's going in, so that's right. clearly why she was cancelled. <laughs> and anyway, of course they were. I know, I know. So she, so she gets there. She's completely flustered and that. And um, anyway, and MNAK says to her, "Well, we haven't got much time. Um, what, what do you want to do?" She said, "Well, we've got to say something." And he went, "Okay, that's a good sign." And anyway, she went off to kind of like freshen herself up and and everything came back and he'd already started on the beats and everything and then it it was like literally two hours later I think um they'd got to say something and two hours after that I'd got it in my inbox almost identical to what you hear on the radio um it, it was just some of the best songs are written very, very quickly. And, and that one was, and the, the, the funny thing was, was it, it's quite a hard song to sing. And um, he'd started off doing it and she said, oh, you, you should sing it. You're singing it better than me. And he said, no, 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 it's your song. It's your song. And they had a bit of a conflab over whose song. And he kept saying, no, this is your song. It's got you written all over it. It's you. And anyway, and then the, the rest is kind of that that one that one bit of perseverance from her saying, you cannot cancel me, literally changed her life. Um, it was, wow. it was, we went, because there's a lot of people that liked her. And all of a sudden, we went from lots of people liking her to six record company offers on the table, and it, it was kind of, it was, it was literally the record. It went on, it 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 went on to go platinum. Um, it's on about 120 million streams. Um, it spent 28 weeks in the chart. It was on Radio One playlist. It was on Capital playlist. It literally trans- transformed her life. She moved from Newcastle down to London and worked more and more. And, you know, and today she's on, um, I don't know whether you've heard the current record, Undo My Heart. Um, yeah, that, yeah, uh, the Digital Farm Animals. The Digital Farm Animals one, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's playlisted at Radio 1. It's um, got, it's on Capital Dance at the moment. It's on about 8 million streams. Um, she's got another single out in January with Shift 
Kiki, which is a huge, huge record, even bigger than Under My Heart. She's sitting on about quarter of a million monthly listeners, um, sorry, two and a half million monthly listeners, and about 250 million total streams, combined streams, which all began with that record. And yeah. um, she's done she's done stuff, you know, we did we did the things that she did with Wilkinson, um, a bit of drum and bass. Um, what what we did was with with the features that she's done, we we kind of said because um, this this might sound an exaggeration, but probably I get ten requests a week for her vocal, for her voice. Will Karen sing on this? Will she, will she sing on that? And it, it's kind of we we said at the start when we when we said we'd do a few features because what happens when you've got your first record out in your own name? It was a Karen Harding record. It wasn't even didn't even have MNAK's name on it. It was mm. Karen Harding only, and um, you you have to pick your features quite carefully. So we we literally went by the tracks she loved and the tracks she believed in, and we wanted to keep her integrity because when you spend time before you uh, and and this is for any would be artist. Some some people like, for example, they. They think Ed Sheeran rolled out of rolled out of his mother's womb knowing he was Ed Sheeran. He didn't. He had to go through a process to develop his style and what he presents. And that's the same with, with any artist. And mm. what what I would say to, to anybody is is like, you know, don't be afraid. We don't want Karen to be typecast as a, a house diva, for example because she's bigger than that. She's got more than that. You know, she's, mm. she's a true pop artist. And we felt that she, she did the track with, um, she did it, or actually she did two tracks with, with uh, Wilkinson. She's not a drum and bass artist, but they were good for her because they were fantastic tracks. And also they were pop drum and bass. We, we even did a rap track with Pusha T, um, which was used in the Fast and Furious movie, um, which um, which was like you know it, it was a break from what she does, but yeah. it was good. Cool. And we we said let's only do what we really believe in and what is really really good, and keep her artist integrity, which I think is is kind of important. But what I'd say to people out there is if you if you want to play with genres, do it as long as you're not doing something that you might be embarrassed or ashamed about at a later date. Then just do it and get on with it because it's it's worth it's 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 worth it in the long run, you know. Because in the process, as an artist, you discover who you are. Karen, now when when we talk about the music and we talk about the releases and we we go through it she knows exactly who she who she is she knows exactly what she wants she knows exactly what she wants to do and as as a manager that's very rewarding for me to watch her develop from this little girl who we talked about at the beginning who didn't know what genre she was or didn't know who she was as an artist. I think she did some scribbles in her bedroom, but she'd never written a song. Now she writes all her own stuff. She also has loads of cuts made by other people of stuff that we think is not quite a Karen track. And it's kind of, you know, it's incredibly rewarding to watch that develop. And I'd say to to people, don't don't be frightened to develop because sometimes you start on the path and you might veer off it a little bit, yeah. but that 
veering off it might actually be the path that you're going to be taking. So don't be don't be frightened to to kind of veer a little bit if you need to, because you you might end up on your true path, which I think is what Karen did. Almost famous, championing independence across the music industry. Like like you said at the time, uh, MDK and and Karen, they were they they didn't even have anything solid in place. It was just a, I'm going to write this, you sing on it. He wasn't as big as he is now. She wasn't as big as she is now. Um, but you're sat here on a podcast with me telling the story of how successful it is. Just put yourself out there, start messaging other artists, other producers, whoever it may be that you think you might be might be able to work on and and create something great and if it doesn't work out the first time round keep going like you said there's about 10 people a week saying can Karen sing on this well if she's not going to then there's room for another artist to sing on it and I think these 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 bedroom artists which I keep on kind of referring to and I don't mean that in a kind of um a bad way I think it's absolutely fantastic what people can do in a bedroom these days with recorded equipment um put your voice out there like she did the YouTube videos put them out as much as possible um and your song ideas because uh yeah in a few years time we might be having the same conversation Denise about an artist that is really found their way and I think that's absolutely fantastic oh I think it's it's actually um I think with, with social media as it is today, um, it's very, very easy. I, I would say try not to reach out to somebody much, much bigger. Like this this sounds a bit derogatory, but if if somebody with say, I, I don't know, a hundred monthly listeners contacts me to to use Karen's vocal, it's not gonna happen. It's not going to happen. Even it's probably unlikely I'd even listen to it. Um, and this this sounds really really cruel, but it's not going to happen because a even if I listened to it and loved it, even if Karen listened to it and loved it, it's probably likely her label would block it because they're saying now you know now she's at a certain level. You know she's just worked with Digital Farm Animal. Um, who like he's just he's just amazing he took the the song was there to begin with undo my heart it was a great great song he turned it into just an amazing song i've heard it probably ten thousand times now and i still love it every single time um you know it's it's kind of try and reach out for people either a tiny bit bigger or um don't don't aim for the stars until you're kind of climbing the ladder a little bit yeah and, and then you know because they just won't and and it, it sounds it sounds cruel but it's a reality of life um that you're not going to be suddenly discovered it, it's like you know and it, it's it's you need to build and you need to build your streams build your numbers build and I hate to I hate to actually say this because I come from a music era where the music mattered these days, it's the, it's the numbers that matter. It's yeah. the first thing. If you send your track to a label, it's the first thing a label will look at, what numbers you've got. And I think labels are just beginning to realise that numbers on, um, on Instagram, there was a phase where everyone was signing up these influencers. 
thinking, oh, yeah, that's the way forward. But influencers on the whole don't sell records. They don't, they don't, people aren't streaming them. They might want to watch the makeup tutorial or whatever. You know, it's like the, the only the only one that I've seen break the mould is this um, Wes record from Love Island um, that's number three in the charts at the moment. But you know what? It's an absolutely amazing record. It's really cool. It's really credible. And, and you know, great to him. But initially, from the amount of Love Island people being signed up and the amount of influencers and everything else, like a million of them flopped before Wes had his little bit of a hit, you know. Um, and it's it's kind of chaos one as well. He's he's but then what he was doing was kind of linked to music anyway. Um, so he's he's another one broke the mold, but there aren't many, and I think labels are starting to realise now. So I think the important thing is is to make to, to make a presence on Spotify, make a mm. presence on SoundCloud and the music platforms, um, not just a bunchy posy pictures on Instagram. That helps as well. You need to be across the lot. And TikTok, of course, that's like, you know, th- th- records are breaking from TikTok, artists are breaking from TikTok. But, you know, stay stay in the loop and, um, and you know, keep, keep, keep across everything. Um, yeah. And and also, if you're going to be on these platforms as well, keep them up to date. It's like, don't uh, you know? I get emails from from artists and stuff, and you know, I look at everybody. I, I do try and look at everybody and try and see see what's out there. But you know, you you click on their Instagram and they haven't posted for three weeks. Well, you know, what does that tell me? Oh, a lazy artist who can't be. <laughs> can't be bothered with with the yeah. socials. If you're not going to keep up with it, delete the accounts and don't put it in your in your signal. Exactly. And, um, and stick to the one that you're comfortable with. You know, if you're good at TikTok, then do TikTok. If you if you're good at TikTok and you can share it on your Insta all the time, do it. There's a facility there to do it. And it, yeah. it's use use this social media is great these days. And I mean, from from that point of view, I'd say to to people as well, sending out to management or, or labels and things like that. Don't send a generic letter. Send look at the person. Most people now are on are on Instagram or they're on Facebook. Or look at that person, see what they're about, tailor it. It takes a bit longer, but. Uh, as soon as I get one, you know, um, uh, I had one like saying, oh, hi, Denise, I'm a huge fan of um, what you've done with Karen Harding and hence the reason I'm writing to you, blah, blah, blah. But as I went down the email, it said something about, oh, I really love his style. So it's clearly cut and paste with something else and then what what do you think and then you know I mean I I replied to them saying please be careful when you cut and paste in but that became bigger than what I was supposed to be looking at and I I think I think if you you know if you've taken it seriously then do it take a bit more time you know, yes, you can you can do a load of BCCs and hit a hundred people in one go, but you're much much better looking at those hundred people and finding out, and also finding out whether the company you're, you're approaching is a company that can deliver you. Like for yeah. example, I'm I'm 
good. I've got all my contacts in the pop dance world. Whereas, um, you know, if somebody, if a rock act or an indie act or, you know, came to me, I probably wouldn't have the relevant contacts. Even if I thought they were amazing, I probably wouldn't have the relevant contacts to do it. But but also what, what you were saying about reaching out, um, we've got another artist, Danny Dearden, who um, he, he's got, I think, 15 million combined streams. Um, at his peak, he had 600,000 monthly listeners. Um, he, he's got um, a couple of tracks on there. There's one track with a DJ called Alanson, who is a Swedish DJ. That, that's on 1.5 million streams already, and it's, and it's actually doing quite a few each day. Um, but Alanson reached out to Danny on Facebook, I think, and just said... Oh, I really like what you're doing. Um, can we can we do do something together? He sent Danny a couple of a couple of instrumentals for Danny to work on. Nothing of that worked at that point. Danny sent him a few of his tracks, which then he he ended up producing one that ended up being a single, and and it's doing really really well. So it does come about through through just contacting people and getting things. And likewise, Danny has contacted people he quite likes the sound of. Mm. And it, it's it's great um, if you can go manager to manager when it gets to a certain level. But at that start, it's much, much better. It, it's much better the, the artist going to the artist and then doing their thing and talking the artist thing even once you've got even once you've got a manager and then finding finding a way to to do it but mm. we we've got now um probably probably five singles on um five five singles on Danny's Spotify that have been recorded remotely that he's done the vocal at home sent it to the producers they've done what they do with it their magic but you know, and especially in this lockdown situation, you know, it, it's it seems to wear the world at the moment. Mm. Um, Karen's just done a um, a vocal for I, I, I won't say the name at the moment because no contracts have been signed, but a huge, huge, huge um, ADM producer, and she's done the vocal remotely in her home setup, and you know, it it, it is. It is doable now, and you do you can get stuff to, that that will be released. So, what you were saying earlier about reach out to people, do it, do it. If you feel that, but don't go for the numbers. Go for people who you respect what they're doing musically, um, and people who you think you'll be a good match with, and that way you'll end up getting a really good track. Yeah, for sure. I think I think this kind of you, you've already kind of touched upon what I what I did want to ask you next, which was because um, let, let's be honest, somehow we've, we've lived through a very historical year, and I don't know how it's going to end or, or, or what's <laughs> going to continue. Um, but other than maybe having a great studio at home to recording, uh, reaching out to to producers and artists. Um, what else do you think emerging artists can do uh, in a time like this to survive? Um, to, to be honest, they don't need a great studio. They need a decent computer and a decent microphone, um, probably decent headphones to get. But 
usually, um, I mean, I suppose I'm talking mostly from the vocalist side of it, the, the producers would need a, a decent setup, but usually you can you can work things out if you've got a good mic, good headphones if you're a vocalist. Um, most producers work off a, a Mac. Most producers I know, the two lots that we've got work off a Mac and um, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the... I'm not a producer, but they they work off good good sound systems that they they set up, um, you know, garage bands and things like that. And it, it's kind of um, it, it. Usually, it's not that expensive. It, if you if you invest in the bits that you need, um, and and for example, the the artist Danny, who I mentioned earlier, most of his. Um, most of his setup, he's got a tiny little room that he records in. Um, most of most of what he does musically, what he earns now on his PRS and different things from the releases he's got, he just ploughs into upgrading his equipment all the time. Likewise with Karen, you know, it, it's it's kind of if you if you're serious, then if you do earn a little bit from streaming or from iTunes or whatever, and you plough it back in. Then you know you you just feed in you just feed in your future I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but but I would say if they if they've got the means if they don't have the means and they've just got uh, I don't know voice notes I I, I know a lad um, who funny enough when I was scouting for X Factor I found this I found this boy um, who, who's absolutely fantastic, really, really great. He, he chose not to go in the show, but we stayed in touch and afterwards. And um, anyway, he, he literally wrote songs on his voice notes on his iPhone because he'd got no, no facilities or, or nothing. And then when they could, when they could afford it, him and his dad went in and um, and recorded in a in a studio, but he went in with his iPhone and some voice notes and said, "This is what I want to do," and you know worked with the producer around it. And initially, he was paying for those recordings and not a lot of money because it's local people who could get an okay sounding demo. But mm. now he's got a deal with somebody locally who. Uh, a producer locally who's paying for everything and making videos for him and everything. So that, and that just come off a few voice notes. And I think with the technology now, people can do anything with what resources they've got. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, I think it's, uh, it's very, very interesting that a lot of people maybe, I don't want to say the word excuse, but I do hear excuses sometimes say oh I'm not able to do this because I haven't got the money or I'm not able to do this because of that um there there is ways around every single issue if somebody else is doing it um I guarantee they've come there's someone out there that's come from the same background as you who's actually been able to make quite a lot of money in this industry um and I think it really does come down to working hard same with the numbers as well when you're talking about labels do check out instagram or spotify look it's not just because they're trying to see how much you can reach out to it, it shows hard work and i think that's what's going to separate the real artists from people who just really want to be famous during stuff like a lockdown and 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 things that really shake this industry who's actually got the work ethic who's actually going to put the hard work in and i guarantee you of all people will be able to see through 
I, I believe I'm allowed to swear on this. It's it's in a radio show. Um, believe to see through the bullshit, um, and 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 really see who's working hard or not. Because, yeah, I think times are tough, but it's the toughest that really get what they want. And I really hope people take your advice today and and run with it. Well, I think I, I mean one of the things I I always say, and you know, in thirty odd years in the industry, I've seen some. I've seen some really, really talented people, but I've also seen some less talented people make it. But one thing I've never seen is a lazy artist go big. I, do you know, the ones that can't be bothered and can't do it, and you you have to ask like loads of times, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do... They're, they seriously, they'll never, ever cut it because... Once you once you do have a certain level of success, mm. you the work the work involved is absolutely huge. It's 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 immense. It's like you know, it, it's kind of on a day off. I've got Karen doing half a dozen things, whether it be radio idents, whether it be an online interview, whether it be you know doing some vocals or you know it's literally it's relentless. And Karen's mm. not at the level that you know she she could be just yet. She's she's very very successful, but she's not in the do a leap of stakes or whatever. And if you can't put yourself out there when you want it, if there's no hunger. It's never ever going to happen. You need yeah. you need hunger more than you need the talent in some respects. It's it, it's a, it's strange, you know. And you look at you look at some of the superstars. I'm not being funny. It's like you go Madonna. Would she probably get past phase one or two of the X Factor or something? Do you know, because she's not the best vocalist in the world or whatever. Mm. But what she had got was heaps and heaps of drive. And yeah. apparently, um, one of the one of the producers that works with my artists, he worked he worked with Ed Sheeran in the early days, and um, before before he was massive. And um, Ed Sheeran went to a, a couple of labels, were saying, "Look, you know, you write decent songs and that, but you've got no stage presence. You you just don't get it." So Ed Sheeran then went and did in the next year. 235 gigs in a year to get this stage presence and develop it. Most of them he was doing for free. Mm. Um, it, it was like they weren't paid gigs, but that is that is someone who wants to make it. You know, it, it's kind of, and that's what you hear with behind every, and I'm talking megastar acts, you know, you, you might have a level of success if you're lazy, but... Um, as I suppose I, I go in it. I don't. I don't like fame hungry people. Most of the artists, are, well, all of the artists I work with are artists that are musical and generally want to make it in the music business, not front cover of OK or whatever. Do you know that yeah. there is a big, big difference? But if you've got the right drive and you've got the right focus, then you know that that is as important as having all the talent. No, for sure. I think I think you've you've really got it there in terms of uh, I don't I, we're a lazy artist won't make it because yeah everyone that we we see in, in terms of like a Ed Sheeran or um, Madonna we, we've seen all these documentaries and people do come on and explain 
yes, they did stuff for free. Yes, they worked as hard as possible. Like the Ed Sheeran story is is unbelievable. Um, but it just goes to show, yeah, if you want it, you you will work hard for it. Um, of course, I know that not every one story is going to be the same and there's there's different paths in this um and hopefully we're able to get back next year to the industry that we we've known and love especially with live music what would you say your your vision would be then for 2021 how do you think it's going to kind of pan out for both you and upside records and and what's really the plan there um yeah it's it's hard because i mean this show with mr live with um with massively miss alive um i mean from upside point of view we've taken on a few more artists because um you know before i was driving backwards and forwards from birmingham two or three times a week um to, to london and now i'm not so i've got more time to dedicate um i mean in in terms of uh, in terms of the actual music we've got loads lined up we've got probably 15 different record deals on the table for our various artists and people we're working with. And that's just a two-man operation. So we're, we're really, really excited about the music because we know we're going to have lots of releases. It, yeah. It's just the live aspect that we're worrying about. You know, it's, um, it's a worry. It a I, just hope, I just hope that all the festivals and things will be back for the summer. Um, it's, it's odd, Karen was booked for the Boardmasters the last two years. If you yeah. remember, the first one was cancelled because of um, the weather conditions. Mm. And um, the second one was cancelled because of COVID. So they've now rebooked her again for next year. And have a guess what day they booked her on Friday the 13th. <laughs> oh, no. Is that asking for oh, trouble? God. <laughs> Poor Karen. <laughs> All right, honestly, I think I think it's 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 yeah the the live music aspect and, and everyone that's come on so far and I've asked a similar question to it is it is what everyone's missing and I really do hope we we do get to that and um, I hope you guys are upside and all the artists nothing but the best of luck going into twenty twenty one. It is going to be very very interesting to see what happens there. Um, one thing I, uh, I I I don't try and I try and kind of catch people off guard with this question. So sorry, Denise, if I do with this one. You, you <laughs> said you said thirty years in the industry. You have worked with many many artists, many great household names, even even household names from inside the well the other side of the industry. What piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Is if there's anything key out there that you think a uh, a younger artist or younger producer or younger manager should take on what would the advice be um, no believe in yourself i suppose be true to yourself um and don't I, I don't know don't go with the flow the music music business um everybody wants everybody's got an opinion everybody's got a viewpoint just stick to your guns. If you believe in something and you believe in it strongly, then you stick to I'm not saying to artists don't take advice. I'm saying have have that belief because it's the ultimate belief that at some point is contagious and somebody else will get it, you know, um, to a lesser extent, like I said earlier, with the chick flicks, when he said, no, I believed in it. 
I believed, I said, no, no, this is going to go. Ask some people, ask some people who'll get it. You know, it, it's like, I know it's a much, much bigger deal for artists because it's them, it's their life, it's their livelihood. But, you know, have, have faith in yourself. If, if, at, if at whatever point they get to having management like like myself, what, what I say um, to, to my artists is, is, look, you know, it's... Don't give up. Like we we sign people who look out for themselves a little bit. We've just we've just signed a production duo that they came to us. They've got a deal with Sony already. They've got um uh they they've got an agent. They they literally got. And we we said, well, why why are you approaching us? And they said, um, well, you know, we need somebody to make it all make sense to us. And but they've done so much themselves and worked so hard. And anyone, we said, look, you know, we really like what you do, but if we sign you, promise you won't stop doing what you're doing. Because it's like, yes, you've got management, but the idea is to work together, not work, not just go, oh, I've got I've got a manager now, I can put my feet up. If you're an artist and you're not in your own driving seat, you know, yes, as an as like you can hand the steering wheel to me occasionally if you're getting a bit like tired and you want but it's kind of still keep your ideas still keep your vision and and never lose that you know it's it's so important because people do they think oh my manager can do that we can do an awful lot but if you're doing it as well and helping along like like we said about the the artists and uh, Karen's a good example with that. When she started talking to M and AK, if at that point she'd have suddenly said to um, M and AK, "Oh, talk to my manager or get your get your people to talk to my people," then that wouldn't have happened because they'd have they'd have said, "Oh no, we want M and AK working with like established people," because he was starting to get a name and he was doing Becky Hill at the time, who'd started to have some interest in that so it wouldn't have happened so sometimes just talk to each other don't believe that it's all about just passing the buck just just keep your vision and keep your keep your hard work a massive thank you to denise beaton and for more interviews amas tips and tricks and exclusive content follow us on instagram and tiktok at the famous co that's at the famous co my name is zaid tap that subscribe or follow button and we'll see you all next time you've been listening to almost famous a music industry podcast powered by the famous company if you're an independent artist or music industry professional, for more information, head to www.thefamouscompany.com.